people in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. And I'd like to turn your attention to our passage from James. I'll be preaching mainly from our passage in James. That's on page nine in your bulletin. And as I was thinking about this passage, I remembered a comment that I'd come across some years ago that was made by a professor of psychiatry. He's a professor at at Harvard, and he'd written a book. And in this book, he said something that struck me at the time as I was just kind of becoming um, a leader in the church that I was at at that time and beginning to preach more and more. He said something about leadership that struck me. And he said this, he said, based on his experience as a psychiatrist and his life experience, he said that in almost all groups, in all circumstances, whether you're talking about a family or a corporation or a team or a church, in almost all groups, the problems are not primarily about mission or the task of the organization. He said the, pri- the problems primarily are related to conflicts between the people in the organization. If you have the task and you have the mission and you know how to do the work, that's great. But if there's conflict between the people, you're not going to be able to advance. So he said, based on his experience, that was the core issue for many organizations. Conflict can destroy community. And I thought about that because that is what James is trying to prevent in the churches that he is writing to. Um, Just some background on James before we get into this passage. James was the brother of of Jesus, and he had great status in the early church. He was a leader of the Jewish Christians. He was based in Jerusalem. So he was the brother of Jesus, a leader of the Jewish Christians, And he wrote this letter to Jewish Christians who were living outside of Israel. He begins this letter by saying to the 12 tribes of the dispersion, to the 12 tribes, no matter which tribe they belong to. He's writing to all the people of Israel, to those who have dispersed outside of Israel, outside of Palestine. And he meant this letter to be circulated around these churches. Um. And so he's not writing to a specific church like we have with the Apostle Paul writing to Ephesus, the church in Ephesus or Corinth and dealing with specific issues that came up out of those communities. But he's writing to these churches throughout the Mediterranean world and throughout the Middle East, these house churches comprised of Jewish Christians. And he's talking to them and warning them and teaching them about situations that 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 come up in the churches And come up even today in our own churches. And so these are principles that apply to all places, I think, in all times. And he is concerned, as I said, to prevent conflict and the disorder that flows from conflict in the church. And so I want to talk to us about this. How can we at Church of the Resurrection guard ourselves against division and conflict, or to put a positive spin on it, how can we maintain the unity that God has given us? And we're not at a at a at a time or a season, thank God, where there's conflict happening. 
But how can we maintain this precious unity that God has given us and prevent conflict from occurring that could lead to division and disorder? Well, James deals with or targets an an attitude that needs to be dealt with within all church communities. And you can boil it down to prideful selfishness, prideful selfishness that can lead to division. And this prideful selfishness manifests itself in communities in several ways. And that's what he begins to talk about here at the beginning of this passage. He points to two attitudes that are related to this pride. In verse 16, he says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, those are the two attitudes here he mentions, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. I want to drill down on those words for just a moment. Of course, we know what jealousy means and envy And um, we're familiar with that dynamic in social relationships. But there's a connotation here that you don't get, I think, in the English word. That's the the, the word that's translated here in English. There's a connotation in the original language that you don't necessarily get in the English because this word that's translated jealousy and rightfully so it's translated jealousy is the Greek word zealous, zealous, from which we get the word zeal. So there can be a kind of healthy zeal, and we know that we ought to be zealous for the Lord. We ought to be zealous for God's truth, God's word, the expansion of the gospel. But there can also be a kind of harsh zeal that leads to contention that is rooted in rivalry and jealousy and envy. And we have to watch out for that kind of harsh zeal. A zeal that runs roughshod over other people. It's not really taking into account their background, their experience, their struggles. A harsh zeal that has little love for people. Now, I've been reading a little bit about the life of a great Anglican bishop named J.C. Ryle, who was a great evangelical Anglican bishop. I think he was the bishop of Liverpool in England. And he actually has an essay on true zeal. And he wrote this, he said, the difference between true zeal and bitter zeal or harsh zeal. He says, bitter zeal turns people into enemies. Bitter zeal is ready to take up the sword and strike people down to use worldly means to advance the cause. But true zeal, godly zeal, will always be tempered with charity and love. True zeal will hate sin, but love the sinner, hate heresy but love the heretic. And so we have to guard against this kind of bitter jealousy, as James puts it earlier in this chapter. He talks about bitter jealousy or harsh zeal, a zeal that kind of runs roughshod over other people to advance our cause or to put ourselves in a position of power. It's a selfish kind of zeal that James is warning against. And then he warns against selfish ambition. Selfish ambition, another manifestation of pride. And it's interesting that several commentators point out that James may have gotten this word from the realm of politics. Can you believe it? (laughs) Selfish ambition. 
because Aristotle used this very Greek word when he was talking about politics and he used it to refer to somebody who was seeking political position for selfish gain through unfair means. And that can happen in the church. Selfish ambition, seeking position and using unfair means to get ahead and pitting people against one another where it leads to factions and divisions to advance your own cause. And so these are manifestations of this self-centered behavior that James is warning against. Watch out for these attitudes. And here's where it leads. It leads to, as he says in verse one, quarreling and fighting this sort of mentality. These sorts of attitudes lead to quarreling and fighting selfish desires. Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? He says this can even lead to murderous attitudes or or murder outright. You desire and do not have. So you murder. You covet and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. There it is again, fighting and quarreling. You do not have because you do not ask. And James says, now, if these attitudes are going on in your heart or if these are the sorts of impulses in your spirit, then don't expect God to answer your prayer until you've come to a place of repentance. He says, you, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Again, the self, your passions. And he warns, he says, these values, self-centeredness, self-assertiveness against another person, these are the values of the world. This is how the world operates. But this is not how the body of Christ should operate. This is not how Christians should operate. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You know, if you've been around the church long enough, and I know pretty much everybody here has been around the church long enough, you have witnessed these these sorts of divisions and conflicts within the church, unfortunately. And you've seen the, the harm that that can cause and the way that can affect people. I know a pastor who, um, who received threats in the mail from a faction within his congregation. He came to a church and he said, okay, there's several problems that I see in this church. There's some areas that we need to work on. And he laid out his agenda for working on them. And he said, before you call me, this is what I'm, I'm telling you, this is what I'm going to do. And he was the kind of person that gets in there and, and doesn't hesitate. He gets it done. But there was a group of people who said, we want you to come anyway. But in the back of their mind, they said, we're going to be a bulwark against this change. But he went forward. And so this faction developed and literally he received letters that threatened him. It can get very ugly. Um, we hear about the worship wars, unfortunately, today and churches that divide because of styles over worship. And I read this is not something that's entirely new. I read about a church in England, uh, the pastor, the rector. This was an Anglican church, made some changes to the worship. And they were pretty radical changes, to be fair. They were radical changes. And he could have done a much better job preparing his congregation for these changes that were about to come. But they were so radical and people were so disturbed that they began disturbing the service as he was trying to preach. Some people were setting off fireworks and some people actually brought in animals, goats and sheep into the congregation. 
Nobody ever fell asleep, I think, during those services. But nobody probably heard the gospel being preached as well. So it can get ugly. And it, it, but those kind of factions, divisions can get very ugly. And it comes from an attitude of, of pride. That's what James is identifying here. He says these attitudes earlier, he says, they are natural. They are earthly. They're not supernatural. They're not from the spirit of God. They are natural. They are unspiritual. And he even says those attitudes that lead to factions and division in the church are demonic. We have spiritual forces of evil that do not want churches to be healthy, especially churches that are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, especially churches that are calling people to faith and repentance in Jesus Christ, that are wanting people to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, that want families to flourish in the wisdom of God. And there are spiritual forces of evil opposed, and we're called to stand against those forces of evil and resist, as James will go on and say in this chapter, Resist the devil. Resist the devil. And so how do we resist? In the face of these attitudes that are really so much part of all of us, they are natural, they are unspiritual, but they're there. One of my favorite sayings about pride, which I've shared before, is pride grows on the human heart like lard grows on a pig. (laughs) It is part of our condition as fallen human beings. That pride will grow in us. So how do we fight against these sorts of attitudes? Well, it comes down to one word. We need to cultivate an attitude of humility. Humility. God opposes the proud, he says, but gives grace to the humble. And then he'll say in verse 10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will exalt you. See, part of what's going on here is that people are motivated out of fear oftentimes. And that's what leads them to this place of divisiveness and running roughshod over people. They're not trusting in the Lord and looking to the Lord for security. So they play this game of the dog-eat-dog world. And James says, no, humble yourselves before the Lord. Trust in Him and He will lift you up. He will give you that security. So it's a matter of trust. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So here is a very good reason to fight against this pride. If you believe what James is saying, God opposes the proud. I don't want God to oppose me. I don't want God to oppose my family. I don't want God to stand in opposition to our church. That is a battle I don't want to fight. In this corner is Ben Wagner with his sin and his weakness and his limited, very limited power and intelligence and understanding. And in this corner is God. All-powerful, all-knowing, holy, majestic, eternal, infinite God. I don't want God to oppose me. We don't want God to oppose us. He is the one, James will go on and say, we're talking about God who is, this is verse 12, it's not in your bulletin, but he says, God is the judge and the lawgiver who has the power to destroy and to save. I do not want to be in opposition with God. 
He gives the perfect law. And He is the judge. And He has the power to save or destroy. So what I desperately need is grace. I need the grace of this God. And that requires humility. How do I get the grace of God? Through humility. By humbling myself before Him. By admitting that I need His grace. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we need humility in order to access the grace of God. And if we know God, we will be humble. If we really know who God is, we will be humble. I thought of this old country song, this old crazy country song by Mac Davis. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. (laughs) And then I looked up the rest of the lyrics and it gets even funnier. I can't wait to look in the mirror because I get better looking each day. (laughs) Tongue in cheek. That's a song you could only sing maybe in your 20s. You can't claim to be perfect in every way if you know the perfect law of God. If you know who God is and his perfect law, it will humble you. So, friend, are you humble before the Lord? If you know him, you'll be humble before him. And then that humility will lead us to be humble towards other people. Humility with God leads to humility with others. We know that we don't have it all figured out. We don't have the answers. We're not perfect. We've seen that in light of the law of God. And we have been broken in light of the cross of God. Our stony hearts have been broken up. And that will lead to, as we come from that place of humility, that will lead to peace with other people. And so in verse 17, James commends these virtues that flow from humility and that end in peace. So you have selfishness and pride that end in disorder and you have humility that produces peace. Verse 17, the wisdom from above, not the wisdom of the world, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Selfish pride leads to disorder. Humility leads to peace, leads to wholeness, leads to shalom. And that's what we need in our world today, brothers and sisters. Churches, communities that are places of peace in a fractured and divided world. Places of peace. Now, let me just make a couple points of application before I close. I think what James is teaching here, while it applies to all Christians, applies particularly to those who are leaders or would be leaders in the church. Because he begins this passage by saying, who among you would be wise or who among you is wise and has understanding? Let him show this wisdom. Let him show this wisdom in the gentleness of meekness. So he's saying to people who would say, hey, I'm. I'm wise, I've got some knowledge here. I want to be a leader in the church. At the beginning of this chapter, he says something very sobering to people like me. Not many of you should become teachers. My brother. Because you know that you will be judged more strictly. 
So there's a higher standard. And so while these principles apply to all Christians, I think they particularly apply to those of us in leadership position in the church. Clergy and other kinds of leaders need to pay attention to what James is talking about here. What we need to cultivate, leaders, is humility before God that comes from a place of the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs says. And James is drawing on that wisdom tradition. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So what we need to do, and here I'm preaching to myself, is we need to daily humble ourselves before the Lord in prayer, and we need to put our nose in this book and get to know the God of the Bible. This God who is judge and who is the perfect lawgiver. And who's provided a way of salvation. And that's our only hope in light of who he is. That's how we kill the pride. God gets bigger and our ego gets smaller. Not many of you should be teachers, my brothers. We need teachers, but we need teachers who have this kind of attitude of humility. And so I was thinking about the terrible scandals that have tarnished the church. That we've heard about. And that we're going to keep hearing about. And all the damage that's been done. Of course. The terrible things that have been done to those victims. But also the damage that's been done to the reputation of the body of Christ. What happened there? What happened? There's a lot of different factors. But I think one thing that happened is that the clergy involved in those horrendous scandals lost the fear of the Lord. If they ever had it, they lost it. They lost humility before God and they became filled with selfish ambition, which James warns, he says, it will lead to disorder and every manner of evil. And that's what we've seen. And they shut their ears to the words of Christ that we heard in our gospel reading. You want to be a leader? You want to be great? Then you need to serve. You need to serve people like this, a humble child. And I'm saying this not to throw stones. I'm saying this because I really feel, and I was talking with somebody in our church about this recently, this is a wake-up call for the church as a whole, the body of Christ. We need to humble ourselves before the Lord. And we need to repent of prideful attitudes that may be operating in our hearts. And so you can pray for your leaders. You must pray for your leaders and your clergy that we get to this place of humility before God. And we stay there. And we stay there. And may God bring us all to this place of humility. We need to check all of us ourselves if these things are operating in our hearts as harsh zeal that runs roughshod over people or this selfish ambition that just wants to get ahead, the quarreling and the fighting that that leads to, if that's operating in our hearts, we need to come to a place of repentance before the Lord and humble ourselves. And then allow His grace to restore us and heal us and that grace leads to peace in the community. And that's what we need to see. God calls us to be a community of peace. That happens through the transformation of our hearts. That happens through an encounter with the grace of God. I'll end with just this story here. This comes from Chuck Colson, who 
Uh, many of you know, have heard of, he was the founder of Prison Fellowship. And in one of his writings, he talks about going to Walla Walla State Penitentiary in Washington, which was one of the worst penitentiaries in the country at the time. Prisoners were allowed to, to uh, well, I don't know if they were allowed, but prisoners carried knives with them to protect themselves from one another. It was just known. The place was filthy. Um, the prison was divided along ethnic lines and gang lines. They were treated harshly, so harshly, they were thrown into solitary confinement, which was just filled with swill and dirt and all manner of grossness. And that was the condition of Walla Walla when Chuck Colson got there. There was a chapel there, but he said it was used for illicit activities. And so when he, he got there, he began a ministry. He appointed somebody to begin a Bible study. And he returned there five years later and he said, this is what I saw. I saw a place that was transformed. By people being transformed. The cells were painted freshly. The floors were scrubbed clean. The chapel was being used for Bible study and it was a new chapel. And many people who were once enemies were now brothers in Christ. And he tells the story of two men, Don and TJ. They had been in rival gangs and, and now they were Christians, but, but they had stayed away from each other because of this history and this rivalry. And one day they encountered each other in the rec room and people wondered what was going to happen. And TJ went up to Don and he said, Don, I'm sorry I killed your family in the gang wars. And the reply came quickly. I'm sorry I killed your people. I was about to tell you the same thing. And they embraced and they forgave one another. And there was reconciliation and there was peace. That only happens through a transformation of the heart. That only happens by the grace of God at work in people's hearts. And if it can happen in Walla Walla, the point that Wilson was making, it can happen anywhere. Not that that was a perfect place from then on out, but transformation happens. God calls us, brothers and sisters, to be a community of peace in a fractured world. God has given us peace. God has given us unity. Let's protect it. Let's preserve it. If we see these attitudes creeping up in our hearts, let's repent. And let's humble ourselves before the Lord. And he will lift us back up. Amen.